please pronounce your name correctly for me. Yes. Shayna Leib. I had that totally wrong. I just would have said something completely different. So that's great that you did that. Well, it's a German last name and it's haunted me my entire life. People have always mispronounced my first and last name. So you sort of get used to answering to Shina, Sheena, Shauna, Shanene. And then I just raised my hand. You know, the, the, the teachers could never get it right. And they'd always say Lieb or whatever. So, you know, you get used to that. I do. I, I got ridiculed for my last name because everybody couldn't pronounce it correctly. It's Doles, but everybody's like dolls. It's phonetic. Yeah. I mean, it's literally four you letters. Get something phonetic wrong. I know, right? They make it dolls. That's why. Yeah, but it's missing an L. It's not dolls. I'm aware of that. Thank you very much. I, I completely agree with you. But yet people screw that up endlessly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Well, and then Bob Dole was around when I was young. But he was oh. very popular. So I also got that. But I recently found out we have we were doing some family genealogy that actually my last name is supposed to have the umlaut, the two dots over the O. Oh. So it's supposed to be is like – Duels. Duels, right. That's what the umlaut would be. Duels. Yeah. Oh. Fellow German? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Eight, seven eighths German is my oh, descendants. Oh, goodness. Yes. The rest wow. is Finland, is one eighth Finland. Finnish, I guess. Yeah. I think I'm an Eastern European mutt, possibly gypsy people. Bulgaria, Czech, Poland, Russia. I don't, we're not really quite sure you don't look very gypsy yeah i i don't know what i look like i think there's some greek in there and there's some german in there too so take your pick okay you do know where gypsy comes from i didn't know this but i learned it when i moved here because gypsies are racially divided here in a different way but anyways but yes <laughs> gypsies are their own thing here but gypsies come from india is the, is the actual oh. heritage of gypsies i did not know that I didn't either. They refer to them these days as gypsies and Romas, uh, but generally that that whole sort of group of people actually are descendant from India. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I had no idea. You learn something new every day. I try to anyways. <laughs> All right. So you have a fascinating background. Like You studied Russian literature, classical piano, and glass blowing. Is there any co correlation between that? Or were these literally like you just couldn't decide on one? Or were they like chronologically in different order? I started taking lessons as a pianist at the age of seven. And I was, I was a very lonely kid. I got picked on a lot. So I was very lonely and spent a lot of time by myself. And the piano just sort of caught on to that. And then I fell deeply, madly in love one day when my parents had this record back in the days when there were these nice little thin, shiny things that would spin around and around and around on a table. And my parents had a record. It was called Hooked on Classics. And you might remember it because you're of my generation, but any kids listening to this podcast will surely not know what we're talking about. But there was a bunch of classical music on that, and I was just kind of meh about classical music. I, you know, I like to play the piano, but I wasn't sold on classical music. But then 
one day listening to this album, something came up and I stopped what I was doing and I said, what is that? What is that? I need to know right now. My mom pulled out like the album cover and she said, it says here, Sergei Rachmaninoff. And I said, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And then I went through the other albums looking for anything else of his. I think it was like Rhapsody on Athema Paganini or it was part of Rock 2 or something like that. And from that point on, I was sort of obsessed. It was a hook, line, and sink moment where I think I was 12 years old when I first pressured my piano teacher to try a Rachmaninoff piece, which of course she just took one look at me and was like, no no, this isn't going to happen. Those are very difficult pieces, right? Oh, they are probably some of the most difficult. Rachmaninoff and Franz Liszt is also very difficult. And of course, Rachmaninoff had ginormous hands. If anybody's ever seen the movie Shine, there is a moment where the teacher and the student go into an old storage room where... All of these busts of composers are. They've got like Haydn and Handel and Mozart and Beethoven. And then he picks up this giant hand, which is Rachmaninoff's hand. Rachmaninoff doesn't have a bust. He just has a hand. And they pick up this ginormous hand. And Rachmaninoff had like an epic reach, unlike any other composer in the history of music period, because he had such ginormous hands. So those of us that like to play him are in a continuous state of perpetual struggle, especially for those of us like myself that have very tiny hands, that we're not blessed with great anatomy. So Rachmaninoff is very challenging, but I, at a very young age, I finally played my first prelude, I think at the age of 12 or 13. And that's pretty much, once I love something, it's, it's all over. It's like, that's the only thing I want to do. I was one of those kids. And my teacher would always argue with me. She'd be like, fine, you can play Rachmaninoff, but you got to play this Mozart sonata. And I, I bitch and moan and got to play this Beethoven. And I didn't like either of them, to be honest. I didn't really like classical music. And then I found my niche probably at the end of high school and going into college because I took piano lessons in college as well where I found the era that I liked the most, which happened to be the modern era of classical music, which was like Ravel, Debussy, Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky, Gershwin. They all kind of overlapped that modern era. And I continued to have to compromise with all of my teachers and play the stuff that I didn't want to play. But yeah, Rachmaninoff was my first true love in terms of music. But I think I've gone off on a tangent. I studied a lot of different things in college. So many different, you know, my, my parents told me, they said, we don't care what you study. We just need you to stay in school. And I, you know, I took them at face value and, and I started to fall in love with a bunch of different topics. My parents and I had the same agreements were very similar where they basically said, they didn't care what I studied as long as I got a, an accredited four-year college diploma. 
Exactly. So, so I couldn't go to like a, an art school for my undergraduate. They wouldn't let me do that or a conservatory. Oh. In your case. Like I had to go to like an accredited school sure. and get a legitimate four year degree. But once I was done with that, then I could do whatever the fuck I wanted. But for that first four years, I had to get that mm -hmm. sort of legitimate degree. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I tried to study psychology and I love it. But they tried to pressure me into like being of one thought, like I had to be Jungian or Freudian or whatever. And oh, I was like, right. no, no. I, I'm like, I like all of it. Like, I, I, I want to take a little bit here, a little bit there, mm -hmm. and put together my own little thing. And they were like, you can't do that. Like, yeah, well, academics are like that. I got that in my philosophy major too. There's analytical philosophy and there's contemporary European, and they do not go together. If you ask these people, you know, academics, it's you're you're one or the other, and they both kind of look down on the other side. And I always thought, I'm like, that's, first off, that's kind of arrogant. And secondly, that's awfully myopic. You know, I enjoyed both areas of philosophy. So it's kind of like what you're saying with psychology, Jungian versus Freudian. Why can't you take a little bit from both? Well, which are not the only philosophies or, or only psychologies exactly. in the world. Like, I mean, there's so many other great ones. Mm-hmm. But wait, you said um, that that's how they are. I, aren't you a academic? Yes and no. I'm a little bit of everything. I was always the person that kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. I've, I found incredible amounts of inspiration from a lot of different things. I loved anthropology. I loved psychology. I loved philosophy, English. You know, at, at one point, I wasn't, I wasn't really enjoying college for the first couple of years until I sat in on my first philosophy class. And then it was like something just sort of clicked in my brain. And I'm like, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. This is, you know, this is what I liked about English, only it's to like the hundredth degree, if that makes sense. And then it was like, you couldn't get me out of school. I was one of those people that actually really liked college. And at the end of my college career, I think I graduated like with 364 credits, which was more than twice, I think, what I needed. So it was a lot. You know, I was always interested in something and drawing connections between various different disciplines. So, you know, it sounds a little goody-goody, but it was mostly just that Part of me was just delaying the inevitability of graduating, having to figure out what the fuck to do with my life. And part of me was just genuinely curious about all these things and, you know, connecting them all together. And have you figured out what to do with your life at this point? Still working on it. I've sort of figured that was yeah. the answer, yeah. Yeah, I do a little bit of this. I do a little bit of that. I'm working on a painting series right now. I just finished a children's book. I've got a lot of different things and that I'm interested in pursuing. So. I guess I'm more one of those people, but art for me in college was sort of a way to decompress from academia. It was the way to kind of calm my mind from all the papers that I had to write. I mean, I remember, so I went to an institution called Cal Poly State University, which had sort of a complex this is the best way that I can describe it is it was a polytechnic college, which means it focused on sciences and 
mathematics and engineering and things like that. So it's liberal arts program sort of had a complex and that was like, well, we know we can't be overlooked. So it worked in favor of the students because they had some absolutely mind-blowingly awesome professors in the liberal arts of a polytechnic college. And, you know, it was in my hometown. And part of why I stayed in my hometown was because of the glass program there. Glass programs in the United States are a little bit more on the rare side when it comes to art programs. Most institutions will offer, you know, traditional like painting, sculpture, sometimes even ceramics. But in terms of glass, it was very unusual to find an institution that had glass. There weren't a lot of them. Maybe, boy, at the time that I was in school, maybe like 10, something like that, plus or minus. So I wanted to stay there. And for a while, I was a little bit, you know, disgruntled because I'm like, ah, this Cal Poly, you know, it's just that's in my hometown. It's what I grew up with. How good can this college be? And then slowly after, you know, years of being in various different disciplines, I'm like, these are actually really good teachers. They are really good. I mean, not to poo-poo my, my second college, but Cal Poly, hands down, seemed to hire a higher caliber of professor than the UW where I did my graduate work. So, you know, it wasn't hard in some ways to sort of stay in school, but I took glass blowing and little bit of ceramics and stuff. It took art classes to sort of give my mind a break from all of the thinking. And I would take a lot of units. We were on the quarter system and that's sort of rare in the United States to be on a quarter system. So I would take between 16 and 22 credits every quarter. And it was sort of on the high side of what people normally take, but that's where the art and the music came in was I just, I needed, I needed a break. And so I would just enroll in glass class, piano, whatever, to sort of just give my mind a chance to decompress. Okay. So then where did the Russian literature come into that? Well, I started off as an English major because I didn't know what else to do. And at the time, Cal Poly didn't have an arts major, or I probably would have chosen that by default, to be perfectly honest. But they didn't have it. They just had graphic design and photography. And I wasn't interested in either. So I chose English because in high school, I really liked English and I liked writing. And I was not really interested in the traditional things like Shakespeare and Chaucer, you know, English literature. I wasn't really that interested in that. So it wasn't until... I took a Russian literature class and like French existentialist literature that I, you know, I found something that sort of resonated with me a little bit more. I really liked Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, Camus, Kafka, those sorts of things. And at the time when I had taken my first philosophy course, I switched gears and I made English a minor got into philosophy, got specifically into existentialist philosophy. So the literature interest just sort of followed that, you know, existentialist Russian literature, existentialist, you know, German and French literature sort of went with the study of Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Sartre, Heidegger, 
and contemporary European philosophers. So that's where that connection comes in. All right, I want to take a step back. Mm -hmm. What did your parents do? Like, so what kind of childhood did you have that led you down the path of um, the, uh, that that varied life that you are, are choosing <laughs> at this point? Because I'm thinking that you're just coming out of college, having studied classical piano, Russian literature, and glass blowing. How did you get there in the first place? Good question. Well, we're from New York. My whole family are New Yorkers, both sides. Grew up in Syracuse for about five years until we moved to California when I was five or six years old. My dad took a job out there. I'm an only child. And he took a job out there in California in a little coastal town called San Luis Obispo. You know, it was, it was a very kind of lonelyish childhood, like I had mentioned I, I sometimes think like, gosh, why, why was it so lonely? I think that it probably didn't help that I had a New York accent when we moved to, to California and that sort of set me apart from the kids. And, you know, kids don't always take well to outsiders. So, you know, I was, I was teased and, and, and bullied a lot and a really quiet kid, really, really quiet. I was also pretty smart and that sort of cast me as a nerd girl, nerdy girl. So that didn't entirely help my, my situation either. But California, you know, I really hated it at first. I missed home terribly, as did my mother. And my father was really absorbed in his work. My parents wound up divorcing when I was 11. And then it was just me and my mom, which, you know, was also a very lonely time in my life and you know going to school art and art and music kind of always helped me through my mom has some artistic talent my dad does not but my grandfather on my mother's side was a little bit like me he was sort of a, a jack of all trades he did welding he did the, a lot of the fire arts which at times I've sort of thought to myself, like, why am I, why am I so attracted to like glass and metal and things that are made with fire? Like, where did this come from? Um, and my grandfather, I didn't make this connection until I was an adult. It's a very obvious connection, but my grandfather was into the fire arts. He was a metalsmith. He was also a painter and a woodworker. And, you know, when I talked to my mom or her siblings, they said, he could make anything, absolutely anything. You see something you like, and he'd say, I'll make it for you. So I think some of his artistic leanings kind of got passed down to my mother, who did painting. And she was what I think was a fantastic painter. She'll say she wasn't, but I think she was a fantastic painter. And I used to watch her when we were in Syracuse. We had a sunroom, and I used to watch her paint. And I always just wanted to lick the paint because she would use it with a, you know, like a palette knife, slap it on the canvas. And I always wanted to run my fingers over and she's like, no, 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 you can't touch it because it was oil paint. It took forever. It took eons to dry. And we always did crafty type things. You know, when, when I was a kid, we did all sorts of, we would sometimes participate in holiday fairs and 
make these weird jars with candy on the top, like bread dough. We would cover mason jar lid with bread dough and then glue a bunch of candies and shellac the whole thing. And we would do these holiday fairs together. So that was real fun. You know, things definitely changed when my dad left at 11. And that was sort of a different era from that point on. But I think some of the artistic stuff comes from that side of the family. And possibly from my grandfather. So it's just, it's strange that I found my way into a field of art that I think if he were alive today, he would have definitely tried glass. I don't think he would have been able to resist the the lure of that, but that just wasn't common in those days. Well, it's still not incredibly common, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah, it's a little bit, a little bit more rare. Yeah, I mean, I watched, uh, what was that Netflix? Blown Away, Blow, Blow yeah. Away. <laughs> Yeah. And how they kept bringing up how uncommon it was that women were in the oh, glass yeah. arts, that it generally is an old old boys club. Is that actually true? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was going through my undergrad at Cal Poly and I was in the program for six years, I was the only girl in all that time, which is a huge contrast to when I was teaching at the UW, like 20 some years later, 15, I don't know how many years later, when I looked at my roster, I had this moment. I was like, holy shit. I, I looked and I had 16 students, 13 were women. And I, I just was stunned. I was absolutely stunned because coming from a time where there weren't a lot of women and frankly, you know, you know, we would get heckled and we'd get picked on and, you know, have to go through a lot of crap in order to learn how to make it. I mean, my, my teacher at the time didn't exactly have a fondness for women. So that made it very difficult. And, you know, in turn, I sort of had to become this belligerent prick where, you know, because he really wasn't fond of teaching in general. You know, it was more, he'd go on these, <laughs> these like acid uh, sort of flashback tangents in class. And we'd all just sort of like look at each other like, oh boy, there he goes again. And he'd go on these, these like <laughs> acid flashbacks because he was a child of the sixties and Talk about something totally non sequitur, completely just bizarre. Like, how the hell did you get on that subject? And instead, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, I just, can we, can we not do that? Can we go into the hot shop and you actually teach us something today? But he was sort of in his own world. And I don't, I suspect he, he didn't have a, a fondness for, for girls. So trying to learn the art of glass blowing you know, was really kind of difficult. The boys were kind of arrogant and stuck up and they would pair with each other. And it was hard to find a partner because glass blowing is a partner sport. It was hard to find somebody to pair with sometimes. And, you know, back in those days, we work with color that we order from companies overseas like Gaffer and Reichenbach and Kugler colors. And back in those days, this was in the early 90s, colors were not tested for something called compatibility. 
Compatibility is absolutely essential when it comes to glass blowing and using color. And what that means is that whatever color you're manufacturing has to have a coefficient of expansion, a COE, which is represented by a number. In our case, the most common one is usually around 96. Sometimes we also have products that match the coefficient of expansion of 90. And then borosilicate has a COE of 32. So it's absolutely essential that these glass makers are able to manufacture colors which match the coefficient of expansion of the base glass, which is the clear glass, because all base glass is clear, and we add colorants to it, usually in the form of rod or granules called frit. So it's essential that that's compatible. And I remember in my early program, I remember everything that I made using color cracked. Everything. I was so brokenhearted when I got things out of the kiln and they were either shattered or they were cracked. And I went through this for probably, I don't know, maybe six months, seven months until I finally came to the teacher and I said, why is everything I'm making cracking? And he said, because of compatibility. And I said, what's that? And he explained it to me and I was pissed. <laughs> I was like, why didn't you tell me this seven months ago? Are you fucking kidding me? This whole time I've been making stuff and it's been breaking and you could have told me that there was some issue of compatibility. He said, well, now you know. And I, I started to ask people, I'm like, what is this? How do I fight against this? And then the boys would say, oh, yeah, well, you got to test every single color bar that you get. And I was just my mind was blown. I'm like, I, this is pretty, pretty important. This is pretty essential, you know? And I, I kind of felt like in that moment, I'm like, dude, how'd you guys all know this? And is this why you've been mocking me the entire time? Like, Oh, look at the girl. They're struggling, you know, and she's doomed to fail because she's working with that orange and we all know orange is incompatible. So it was, it was, it was a challenge to, to go through that program and to, you know, try to learn and test out colors. So, you know, it's little things like that. And I'm sure I didn't help my situation any because, you know, after I found out that I didn't know all the information, I became a royal pain in the ass. I was constantly asking questions, constantly. I was hungry for information and I, I'm sure I was a pain in the butt and I was at this Glass Art Society conference in Portland and one of the guys that I went to school with at Cal Poly had come up to me and I looked at him and I can't remember what our exchange was, but he said something like, Hey, you know, good job on your, your career and making a name for yourself. I said, thanks. And I don't know how we got on the, the subject, but I said to him, yeah, you were a real asshole back then. And he said to me, yeah, you were really annoying back then. And we both just burst out laughing. So it was kind of this this moment of sort of self-awareness and kind of I guess growth you could say, but yeah, those those were not those were not easy years to get through, but I was stubborn enough. I just really really wanted to know how to work with the material and 
wasn't going to let it go. I wanted to know. Is the glass blowing like, okay, see, I think there are a number of sort of different genres that, that some mediums are very supportive and very collaborative and cooperative. Like, let's say like ceramics and printmaking, mm -hmm. they, those people, they, they share ideas, share techniques, share equipment, all that. And then there's people like painters and photographers who are not sharing people. <laughs> so like, mm. where does, where does glass blowing sort of fall on that spectrum? Well, it's if I had to lump it as a whole, I would say back in the day it was very not share type person because type endeavor because you know everybody when color was not made compatible would have to buy the color they would have to do something called the trident seal test on it to test that exact rod to see if that color was compatible and they would you know write this down in notebooks so. At the time, it was kind of like, you know, I, I had a friend that I was constantly trying to peek over his shoulder when he was writing in his book to get some information on what was compatible and what wasn't. He would be like, stop. And I'm like, oh, come on, you know everything, share. And he's like, look, I went through hundreds and hundreds of dollars and all these tests to get this information. Like, you need to fucking do it yourself. So, you know, back in the day when color wasn't very compatible and people had to test each one that they were using, in, in a way, you know, you can't blame them for not wanting to share that knowledge because that was acquired with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But I would say nowadays, depending on what generation of glass blower you get to talk to, it's a little bit more friendly. But essentially, at its base, it is a very competitive type endeavor. Like when I switch to other disciplines that I do, I switch to metals or I switch to ceramic, totally different world. Completely. They're supportive, they're warm, they're friendly. And I'm not saying that that there aren't glass blowers like that. I'm not saying that at all. But as a as a general group, they do tend to be a little more kind of arrogant. Well, you do know you're in that field. So, uh, are, yeah, are you say, so you're saying they're arrogant or you're saying you're arrogant? I suppose we all are. I try not to be, but I suppose everybody kind of, if you're in glass, it's usually, glass attracts strong personalities. It really does. And those personalities are often very competitive. I, you know, I don't like the competition. You know, I was asked to be part of Blown Away on the very first season. No. And I was like, no fucking way. That is so not for me. I, I don't like the... I just... That's just... It's not... doesn't fit my personality. I don't want to compete. I don't need that in my life. I'm not a TV person. No, thank you. Thank you, but no, thank you. I was a judge on a TV show like that. Were you? I was. Which one was it? It was actually in the Middle East uh, for oh. National Geographic. I did. It, you, so it was like, it was called like, you want to be a National Geographic, a Nat Geo photographer. Oh. And I was one of the judges on it. Wow. Yeah. And the person that I, that I mentored, the person that sort of like, it, that I took under my wing ended up winning the competition. So oh, I was nice. proud of that. That's yeah. great. That's Don't awesome. get me wrong, it was all her skill that did it, but it was nice that like yeah. I helped her out. Yeah, exactly. You guys were a team. 
it was all her photos, but I sort of guided her, I hope. Yeah. Well, congrats. That's awesome. Thank you. Unfortunately, nobody will ever see it because uh, they dubbed me in Arabic. So so you can't even hear my actual voice even though i had this great voice yeah they dubbed me in arabic and everybody else was speaking arabic so i i got dubbed and they've never invited me back for you know future seasons either well well it's probably not a reflection on you maybe it's maybe who knows could be your ethnicity but you you paired with a winner there so good on you for that yeah, I know. Like, I was the guy who helped the winning person. You would think that they would want to invite me back. But exactly. No, yeah, no. I, I, but yeah, I think it was truly uh, the language barrier issue. Yeah, I bet. But the production value went up exponentially for season two. Like, it, it looked, it uh, looked like mediocre on ours, like kind of cheapy, cheesy. Mm-hmm. But like, season two was gorgeous like they made a beautiful set and it was absolutely exquisite and i was sort of bitter that i was on season one with the shitty set yeah and season two got this gorgeous set and i was just like god damn it yeah i don't blame you the the very last year that i was in grad school at the university of wisconsin madison we had the original studio that was created by harvey littleton in the 1960s it was just this run down beat up old shack it was so beat up that when it would thunderstorm i would go in and i was i was in charge of the studio at that time i had an assistantship so i built equipment and taught students when i was going through grad school the thunderstorm would wreak havoc on the building and i'd come in and the ceiling would have fallen on various different pieces of equipment which i would then have to fix so I always sort of dreaded thunderstorms because I'm like, okay, what now? But it was just an absolute dump of a place. And the very, very last year that I was there in 2003 was the last year that that place existed before it was bulldozed. And frankly, it should have been bulldozed probably 15 years before because it was so toxic. But And then they got this huge multi-million dollar grant to develop a new facility so i i have a little bit of i can share your sentiments that the the following year they have this amazing state-of-the-art facility and meanwhile you know i was constantly repairing damage from a, a fallen ceiling and you know trying to seal off rooms from silica so the kids wouldn't get you know silicosis and you know hurt themselves and stuff so I can I can relate. You've got these beautiful pieces, the the wind and water series and the mm-hmm. patisserie series. Now the patisserie series has become its own thing. Like it's it's Correct. you know having museum exhibitions and doing all kinds of stuff. Like I mean, it's sort of got a life of its own, and it feels like the and the wind and water again, sort of its own thing. Like you seem to not only like jump between mediums between glass ceramic metal painting photography but even within the mediums you also change your aesthetics your mm-hmm. style like like it literally if i saw the patisserie series and a piece from wind and water next to each other i would assume they're different artists right right i have another series that's completely different as well remnant series i don't think i i think i recently deleted that i redid my website no, it's still there. Oh, it's still there. Yeah. And that's completely different too. Yeah. I, I have always resonated with 
artists who change things up. I mean, one of my heroes is an artist named Mark Pizer, who has done like six different distinct bodies of work where you, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know it was done by the same person. He's constantly reinvented himself. And there is some risk to that in the art world because you really, you carve a little niche for yourself with doing one thing and doing that one thing well. And in any field, I don't know if I can say this, this happens more with glass or not, but there are some artists who have done the same thing their entire career, like 40, 50 years. And like Marvin Lepofsky and Tutzinski, these are, you know, very, very famous glass artists. And even Dale Chihuly, though it's debatable whether or not he's an actual glass artist in my eyes, but that's a totally different topic. <laughs> totally different topic. Probably shouldn't have opened that can of worms. But anyway, backtracking. So, you know, I've, I, I just think there is so much bouncing around in my head that my short lifetime isn't going to be enough to do it all. And I follow what I love. If the wind and water series, which is my bread and butter is doing well, then I can afford to take a fork in the road and do something like the patisserie series or work on my children's book or painting or whatever, then I'll absolutely do it. Because though I do love the wind and water series I've been doing that since 2003, you know, that's a long time. And I'm constantly trying to reinvent it and try to do new things, but God, there must be at least 140 pieces in that series, including the installations. Like I, I do some installations that have, you know, 32 individual pieces in that installation. So that installation counts as one piece and there's 140 of them out there there's been so many, so it's kind of hard to keep reinventing. So when I get creative bursts of energy, I often have to look to other mediums. You know, I do ceramics in my spare time. I do metal in my spare time, you know, illustration to kind of get that energy out because that energy will drive me crazy until I purge it. And I just sort of follow whatever it is that, and I, I think you can relate to this because you're, your bodies of work are very different from each other as well, from your your sentimental series, your your regular, it looks like sort of graphic printing and your longing landscapes. I mean, I think you're yeah, kind of- Yeah, I really of, should get rid of those screen printing ones. I th they feel totally not fulfilled. Ah, <laughs> uh, I, I can identify with some of that and looking back on some of my work as well, but- yeah, I just, I don't, I don't resonate with being an artist that's committed to one thing for their entire life. I, I have too many ideas to, to really do that. On the one side, like it can get so tedious and boring. Absolutely. And of course, as, as you were saying, like with an artist that's like, they can get known for it, like quote unquote, like that's mm -hmm. their signature style. And so therefore everybody expects to constantly see that. Right. And in some ways, like, that's a very, for some artists and creative people, that's an incredibly desirable place to be, to even have to have gotten to a point where they have a signature style that they can sell on a regular basis or exhibit on a regular basis. Like even that is a mm -hmm. great career to have. Absolutely. However, there are people like you and me who would be bored to tears yeah. if yep. we had to do the same thing Absolutely. over and over and over. 
Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, I, I don't want to denigrate the Wind and Water series because I really love it. And it's been a passion project for a long time, but it does get old. And there are times when, you know, I've got this creative stirring to do something new. And it it's hard because you want to pivot, but yet you know that the world kind of isn't necessarily or the glass world or the collector world isn't necessarily ready for you to do so so you know you ask yourself a question like how much do I fucking care for me the answer is yeah really don't I'm gonna do what I want to do and then I wind up doing it and it brings me I you know the desserts the patisserie series brought me an ungodly amount of energy and joy there was so much that I hadn't felt for years because I was feeling so stale and so burnt out. And I had enough money in the bank to support myself to take this. It was, it basically took three years. That doesn't mean that I didn't work on the wind and water series during that time. I worked on it just enough to get by, but you know, it was three years of my life into the research and development of the series. Cause I'm not a baker. I don't, yeah, I don't do that. Well, but by the expertise I've seen, you could at least decorate them. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I could. I could decorate. You know, cookies. My mom would make them, and I'd wind up eating half the batter, making myself sick. And then she goes, "Okay, it's time to decorate." And then, if I didn't throw up, I would put some sprinklies on the Christmas cookies. So that's the extent of my my baking knowledge. But you know, the series was just such a joy, and it was the kind of thing where I worked. 70 80 hours on it a week and and it wasn't a chore like my normal job had sort of become it was a reprieve you know i would come home from working in this the the glass studio and i would sit there and i would roll out ceramic sprinklies and i mean like the actual size and i rolled out probably 1500 of them while i was watching tv or watching the great british baking show and you know it's kind of fun because i don't i don't do sit still and do nothing very well. That's, that's not my, not my thing. I'm either asleep or I'm doing something. Those are my two modes. There's nothing in between. So I thoroughly enjoyed myself and that series absolutely put to the test every technique that a person can utilize in both glass and ceramic. I pulled from blowing, casting, fusing, lamp working, laminating in glass to wheel throwing, hand building, piping with, you know, a pastry tube, putting like this gooey, gooey ceramic porcelain in a pastry tube and piping. So it was fun to kind of think like, okay, well, I know all these different things and they've never come together in the same body of work before. So let's, let's test the limits on what I can do. You know, and I, I learned to become a better lamp worker. I'd only done just tiny little, you know, stuff that that just would go on a vase or this or that, you know, nothing to brag about. And I just started playing with it and trying to figure out, well, you know, how do I make a cherry? Okay, I did a cherry. Great. Let's try an orange. Oh, shit, there's a rind in an orange. How am I going to do that? And then I just experiment. And it was fun to kind of work through it. Now, I'm sure I would burn out if, if that was something that I had to do for 
what is it, you know, 18 years, like the wind and water series, I'm sure I'd burn out of that. But that's the beauty of being able to change things up is that you keep yourself interested. Well, but when it comes to that, that's, you know, okay, it sounds really bad because like I've gotten pushback from this from other guests. So I'm going to <laughs> say it, but like traditionally in the art world, especially in arch- academia and all this, they encourage you to sort of like find the signature style, find that single mm-hmm. thing that's your your oeuvre kind of thing. And you have literally sort of just done the complete opposite of all of that. You've chosen to just follow your own mm-hmm. interests and just come up not only within one medium, like, you know, so like those two pieces, those two sets, the wind and water versus patisserie are completely different, mm-hmm. but then you also do a various other mediums and stuff. How does the art world sort of appreciate that from your perspectives? Like, have they been accepting of that or is it like, cause I could imagine this is me and my little my little you know monkey brain sort of thinking this through i would imagine that the patisserie series is probably accepted very well in the art world whereas the uh wind and water is probably very accepted in sort of the commercial decorative sort of mm-hmm. home decor kind of world or or corporate offices or things like this so like, right. i feel like they they almost fall into two different camps of appreciation absolutely Uh, You know, it's been received very well, but you're right. You're very astute in picking that up, that there are two very different audiences. So the glass world and the world of glass collectors is very small niche in the 3D arts world. It's very, very small. And glass has been trying to get out from under its own label for decades now. You know, there's a lot of politics behind it. You know, major glass galleries had made some decisions back in the 90s to, you know, market glass in a way that was economically profitable, but that sort of kind of shot us all in the foot in terms of elevating glass to the status of bona fide sculpture, you know, and allowing glass to sort of transcend its craft-based narrative. And, you know, the, the galleries got rich off of it, and so did the artists. The artists, you know, were like, hey, this is great. We get to do what we want. We get rich off of it. But then they sort of hit a wall. And that wall was, well, wait a minute how come we can't get any higher than just this little niche? You know, how come we're stuck with the small percentile of art collectors that are glass collectors? We want to be, we want to be higher than what we are. We want to be, you know, able to be considered for the Smithsonian or the Met, or by the way, congratulations. I saw your, you have a permanent piece in the Met. Is that I do. Thank correct? you. Congrats. That's, that's amazing. Anyway, it I was not to... anything of my own doing. It was, I, I was in a portfolio that I, my professor put together and he got it. He got the portfolio of 15 artists, printmakers all into the, the thing. So by proxy, just because I'm in the portfolio, I'm in the mat. Yeah, but that is still a tremendous achievement. So that, that's something that, you know, that's like, oh God, that's a dream of mine. But something like that is a dream. But, you know, going 
back to the issue. It's like glass is stuck. It's stuck in this purgatory. And for those of us who consider ourselves sculptors, in other words, we don't just make vases and bowls. You know, we don't just make things for like guild.com or, you know, to put on your mantle or whatever. Like we're actually sculpting with this material. We're creating, you know, art with a capital A or high art or whatever. And some of us still do decorative. Like Wind and Water is a little bit more on the decorative. The patisserie series kind of transcends that a little bit. But, you know, the collector base is just so different. So when introducing the patisserie series, you know, I had to do it very carefully. One of the first things that I did was there were two really big blogs out there. One is, this is Colossal, and one is Bored Panda. And they both run features on my Wind and Water series before. So I emailed the, the head guys there and said, hey, you've done a feature on me before. I've got this completely new series. Would you run something on it. And they said, oh, yeah, absolutely. They took one look at it and they said, yes, absolutely. We're here. So they ran the features and then the the ball started rolling down the hill and it gained momentum. And then other blogs picked up the patisserie series and other ones did. And then it really got out there. And then I made a choice to do a show in Chicago called SOFA, Sculptural Objects Functional Art, where I wanted to introduce that series because my main concern was being able to kind of work my way out of the box that I was put in with the wind and water series and say, Hey, this is me too. You know, like, and what we did is I had a wall and I had a wind and water piece on the left hand side of the wall. And then I had an installation of probably like 18 to 20 different, pastries to the right. And I liked the way that was set up. I, I don't necessarily think that was intentional, but I couldn't have worked it better myself if, if I had, you know, put some intention into it. But people would walk by and they would look at both pieces and I would say, this is my old work and this is my new work. And they had like that typical reaction of, wow, really? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, okay. And, you know, it started to get accepted. And I sold a few pieces, though I really didn't want to. I had created the patisserie collection with a completely different intention in mind. It was never intended to be commercial. It was intended to go from museum exhibition to museum exhibition. And one of the things that was important to me was getting it out there and getting it known that it was associated with me and my work. And so I sort of took a little bit of a hit in the sense that, you know, I think I lost seven or eight due to sales. And, you know, I mean, people would say selling's always good. I love it how you refer to it as I lost seven pieces. Yeah, to sales. I, well, that's how I feel. I mean, even the language that I'm choosing, I, I guess I, I was unaware that I that I <laughs> use that term, but that's how I felt because the installation works when it can when each piece can communicate with the other pieces. It works in quantum. 
it doesn't read as well. You pick one off, like I, I get it. People will look at a huge installation and be like, that's amazing. I want a part of that. And you're like, you don't. You want the whole thing, but you can only afford one. There's a difference. You don't want part of that. You you like the whole well, thing. No, my house can't fit all of that. <laughs> I don't have an exhibition space in right, my house for right. the well, entire that's, petition. That's reason. true. That's that's true as well. But I do have a lovely shelf that one of the patisserie pieces mm -hmm. would look stunning on. Exactly. Exactly. So after that, after getting that introduced to the public, I said, okay, that's it. That's I did what I came here to do. I introduced it. It's blowing up on blogs. Now, no more sales. Now, since I've gotten it out there, this becomes a museum endeavor. This becomes a major show endeavor. And I got really lucky that those blogs led me to an organization in France called the Bernadeau Foundation, which is very prestigious in Limoges. They have their own factory. They're sort of the porcelain hub of Europe in terms of having produced these exquisite, you know, porcelain pieces for, you know, God, I don't know, maybe 200 years, something like that. Sure. I know I'm getting Limoges, that history. Right. Yeah. And the curator emailed me and said, I have decided after looking at your work to create an exhibition based on an idea your work gave me. And she said, I want to do porcelain food. I want to do food that at its base or porcelain at its base that has imagery concept or connection to food. And you gave me that idea. And she says, I would like you to participate. And I was like, whoa, that's fucking awesome. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll totally do that. And then I approached her and I said, so this at this time, I had done probably about 88 French pastries because that was what I was most interested in. But an idea was percolating in my mind of creating an American counterpart to this series and having them sort of offset each other, like having... The same desserts, for example, French cookies like macarons are kind of, kind of like a French cookie, and then having American cookies, doing a French, you know, hot chocolate that's elegant and beautiful, and then doing an American hot chocolate with, you know, marshmallows that's a little bit more garish, you know, representing cheesecakes in both cultures, and and so I approached her and I said, you know, I would be happy to participate. I mean for God's sake, she flattered me. You know, she, she said she was creating an exhibition kind of based off an idea I gave her. I'm like, sure, absolutely. Let's do it. I said, but how do you feel about this? And I said, I have been thinking for a while now about making an American counterpart of comparing and contrasting the two cultures through just their desserts, having French candy, American candy, et cetera, et cetera, basically what I just told you. And she loved the idea. But I only had a year to do it. And in that year, I created 41 or 42 American desserts. And, you know, she she trusted that they would be, you know, a good quality. And I showed her along the way. And I just said, okay, here's, you know, the first 20. I'm working on some more. She loved them. And we got an exhibition together. And we talked about how to display them and flew to France had the best opening 
in my entire life. It was an amazing experience. And I don't think I'd ever been treated as well from, uh, you know, like a, a gallery owner or gallery perspective, but they just, you know, they, they put us up in a, a hotel and they fed us and the celebrations were amazing. It was just, it was a wonderful experience. And I got to see both of those, those installations side by side. And at the time, even though there were 80 some desserts in the French series, we chose a balanced amount. So we chose 42 French and 42 American and put those together. So it started off, you know, as an idea and kind of grew and grew and grew. And it's going to be going to a museum for an exhibition this August in Connecticut, the Wadsworth Museum of Art. So it's going to be in America for the time being. And hopefully at some point it'll find its its home in a permanent place in a museum. But I know my mom, she's constantly asking me, she's like, are you sure you don't want to sell those off? I'm like, yeah, mom, that's not why I created it. This sticks together, you know? And I had little, like, I had little inside secrets for that series that only people that are paying really close attention would notice. Like the chocolate in the American series is this really dull brown, whereas the chocolate in the French series is this vibrant, rich, it was the colors called maroon, even though it's not red, maroon sort of indicates red, but it's just this really vibrant thing. So I kind of had some fun because like in America, our chocolate's just shit. You know, we've got like Hershey's and, you know, so it was, it was kind of fun to do some visual tricks there too. And same thing with the cherries, like the cherries in France are, are deep, beautiful, rich, like Bing cherries versus America, we've, you know, got the marinated and FDC red number 40 or whatever. So there's differences between the cherries. So that was just little stuff that I did for me just for shits and giggles of trying to separate out the two cultures and putting a couple little Easter eggs in there for people that are really astute and could pick up on that. Now, I, I really want to know, like, so from what I read on your website, it seems like you are a teacher part-time. So I guess the question is sort of like, what do you do these days for jobs? Like, I mean, cause like if you're a teacher, then I know you have access to a, a studio to work at like versus do you have your own studio? So like, what's your sort of uh, working process, I guess, and sort of how does it tie together with any additional sort of side jobs that you have? Well, I only taught for a brief period of time. I taught at Cal Poly. I taught drawing and sculpture at Cal Poly. And then I moved back to Madison, Wisconsin, and I taught glass. So those were both very short appointments. So since 2005, I have not taught. I worked for a little while for another professional glass artist for probably about two years before I committed to doing glass 100%. So it's been since 2007 that this is my only job. So it's been a long time. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Not a lot of artists can do that. I know I was really lucky. I don't, I just got very, very lucky. I mean, I, I worked my ass off I, for the first, I'd say five or six years. All I did was work. 
I had zero life. I didn't even take a day off. I was just building my business. And every once in a while, when my family would convince me to take a day off, I would go, I would, I had a crisis because I honestly did not know what to do. And I would sit there and I got very, very depressed. And then I would just be like, fuck it. Then I went back to work, <laughs> you know, and eventually I had to take care of that. I had to figure out how to live life with more balance. And that took me a long time to really stop working that much to start my career and start putting in more time to having a life where, you know, I would join some like outdoor meetup groups or whatever, this or that, or start to take classes. But, you know, there was a good long stretch there where, I mean, when I say I had no life, I mean, zero, nothing. That's all I did. I was just really focused on making it work until, you know, kind of bit me in the butt. Yeah. Like, I'm wondering, was there like a health crisis, a psychological crisis, like what bit you in the butt? Back those days, it was, it was more of a psychological crisis of realizing that I had no idea what to do with the free day and I had no one to do it with. Because I had structured my life solely focused on making it work as an artist, growing my body of work that you know, I, I get obsessively myopic. I just get so hyper-focused that I don't always come up for air. And that's just been kind of the way I've always been. I've not been good at balance. Balance is just not something that comes naturally to me. So the, the crisis really hit when I realized how lonely I was and that I had completely isolated myself for my career and that if I wanted to go out and do something fun, I really didn't know what that should be, you know? And I would look out my window and I would see like people playing soccer on this grassy waterfront park and, and look at them and be like, shit. And it just was like, something's got to change. This isn't healthy. I totally get it. I mean, we're, we've been locked down slash sort of mm -hmm. trying to stay away from that types of things, you know, now for what, a year and a half, almost two years. And like, uh, yeah, that balance of like having things that you enjoy to do that are not relevant to your work is, is something yeah. I struggle with all the time, but, but partly, and I'm on your side because like partly because like I enjoy doing my work. Like mm -hmm. I have intentionally crafted my life so that like I had all the things that I do. Well, okay. Not all Th three out of four of the things that I do in my life. I do because I enjoy doing them. Right. And so like, it's not that hard work really. So like it, I, mm -hmm. I enjoy them and, and like even this, like, you know, I'm doing a podcast. So like I get to meet people all over the world that have similar interests to me and I get to have conversations like this is fun. Don't get me wrong. The editing part, pain in the ass, public publicity and marketing, pain in the ass. Oh, I'm, I'm that's horrible. horrible. That crap. Oh, I know. But I feel you. this part of it, I absolutely adore this stuff. Like mm -hmm. this is great. But I mean, the publicity, fucking pain in the ass. But Actually, well, which leads to a, a question like, so you were saying that like you were building your business and all this. So like, do you do all your own sales or do you work with galleries? Like, how do you manage to get the work in front of the right people? 
part of it is that I'm lucky at this point to be recognizable enough to where, thank God, I don't have to do a lot of marketing. Lucky. Yeah, it's really lucky. I, I People tend to come to me. Now, I only have one gallery that I work with. So I've had a lot of really bad experiences with galleries. In fact, in one year, I had four out of five of my galleries screw me. And the one that didn't in that year is the only one I work with. It's, he's a really great guy. He's in Florida right now. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say names or anything like that, but he's of got a- Of course you are. Yes. Give a shout out to yeah, somebody who does a yeah. good job. Yeah. He's, he's a stellar human being. His name is Jay Scott. I work with him at Habitat Galleries in Florida. He is just, I think he's an incredible human being. He's got a tremendous amount of integrity. His business sense is just, he conducts himself with a lot of honor. And, you know, for me as someone who's not particularly motivated by money, like that is the only thing that matters. You know, I've seen contemporaries of mine sort of fall for the, the carrot and stick sort of thing, you know, where the galleries will will dangle a bunch of money in front of them and say, hey, this can be yours if you just sign your, you know, life and your work over to us. And and I had a gallery try that with me once because they had just signed up one of my contemporaries and they got him to sign over basically global exclusivity, like meaning they were the only gallery in the world who would sell his work. And they were feeling very, very bold. And they're like, well, it worked on him. Let's see if it'll work on Shayna. And him and I are very different human beings. So when they approach me, you know, I kind of had it not on your life. No fucking way. <laughs> you know, I built this career. I'm driving the bus. You know, if it's going to go down, it's going to be because, you know, I'm taking it. I'm, I'm not handing over the reins to anybody. No, thank you. And it wasn't about money. And they were like, you know, we had this, this dinner where they were trying to woo me. And, and when I said no, it's like they were left scratching their heads. Like, what the hell? It worked on this guy. Why isn't it working on her? Because different creative have diff different creative mm -hmm. people have different creative goals in their life. Like there are exactly. some people who go into the creative fields going, I want to be rich and famous, or even I just want to be rich or I want to be famous. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then there are others that just say like, no, I, I want to have artistic freedom mm -hmm. and I want to have space and I want to like not be dictated to and all this. Yep. And, and so like, it, it's not a one size fit all kind of career, you know, like exactly. if you go into law, you know what you're trying to do as a lawyer, you go into medicine, you know what you're trying to do as, as a medical practitioner, but like in the arts, there's, we all have so many different things. Like when I was a kid coming out of school, like my great aspiration it sounds so arrogant saying it out loud now but it, like my great aspiration was to have a retrospective of my work at the guggenheim while i was still alive so i could appreciate it oh that yeah. was my great life aspiration now i'm aware that at this point i probably will not be having that within my lifetime now i hope it happens someday but probably not within my lifetime mm -hmm. but and so like my my goals have changed like now what i really want is i want time space and money enough to be able to not worry about time space or money <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
it's funny how That's that it. works. Yeah. Yeah. We're all kind of motivated by different things. Like to be honest, I mean, it's going to sound kind of crass, but I just want to make whatever the fuck I want to make and like, leave me the hell alone. Like I, I don't like schmoozing. I don't like engage. I'm, I just leave me the fuck alone. I just want to make what I want to make. And, you know, I don't want to be beholden to a gallery and don't want to be beholden to the machine. I want to, you know, sell as much as I need to sell to make it from A to B. I mean, sure, it'd be nice being rich. But for me, like, you know, being rich probably means something very different than it means to the average person. You know, for me, it's like when I think about a legacy that I want to leave, I want to leave my art. And then, frankly, the rest of the money I want to go to animal rescue. Like, that's what I care about. You know, whereas other people are like, yeah, I want to be rich and, you know, I want to have a yacht and I want to have lots of girls and I want to be able to do drugs wherever I want. Or some people, it's I just want a house and a child and a white picket fence. Like we all want different things. But for me, I mean, you nailed it. It's artistic freedom. That's what I want. I have so many ideas and I just don't want to be part of the machine that is just keep putting out the same thing all the time and because that's what the collectors know you for you know all right i noticed also total random change of topic mm -hmm. i noticed on your instagram that you posted some things in maldives and in the uae were you oh, traveling yeah. recently yeah actually yep i went to abu dhabi for an art show wait i'm sorry you like you a show of your work or a show mm -hmm. of oh yeah. okay where mm -hmm. It was in Abu Dhabi and it was in one of the like commercial retail centers or whatever. It was a show that actually did not do very good. It, was, it had a long history of being in Dubai. It was called Big Boys Toys. Had a very long history of being yep, in Dubai and being incredibly successful. And then they switched it over to Abu Dhabi. I think the government wanted to bring awareness or tourism or whatever. You probably know more about this than I do at this point. But I do. They switched it over to Abu Dhabi and it just absolutely tanked. Well, the Big Boy Toy Show is, is generally like the biggest, most outrageous, yep. whatever, cars, planes, tanks, fucking, I mean, anything they could come up with. And Dubai is much more of that than Abu Dhabi is. Between yeah. the Emirates, like Abu Dhabi is sort of the... Let's say let's call it like the mature, sensible older brother mm -hmm. to the younger brother who just wants to like show off, which is right. Dubai. That's the impression I got too. Yeah, and so we were there the two years that they had switched from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, and then the very next year they were like, "We can't do this again. This this is this is such a horrible turnout." They switched it back to Dubai, and then it did well. So I caught it in one of the off years which was a very difficult experience. I remember everybody was getting together and sort of revolting, sort of gathering, which is actually illegal in the UAE. And me and my partner at the time were sort of standing on the sidelines. We knew it was illegal to do that. I don't remember how we knew, but we were not part of the gathering. Wait, what part of a gathering is illegal? What is the, uh, well? I know lots of the issues. I had a friend who was arrested and deported from the UAE, so like I know a lot of the laws. Yeah, it was something to do with like so. A lot of the participants got together and were like shouting at the people in charge because they thought that they were taken for a scam. 
They had no idea the history of the show. They didn't know about it being in Dubai. And then, you know, the Abu Dhabi government saying, hey, we want you to bring it here, kind of not giving them a choice. So these people were, you know, screaming and yelling and gathering. And someone told us, I think it was, we, we met some really good friends there who had been in previous shows. So we had sort of the inside scoop on what was going on. These two brothers that were originally from India, but had settled in Dubai and they made these ginormous aquariums. And so they gave us the inside scoop and they said to us something about how, what the people were doing and yelling and gathering, assembling, assembling, I think is the word was illegal. It was illegal in Abu Dhabi. And we sort of watched it take place and sort of, I don't know. I mean, I was at the point where I sort of felt sorry for everybody. I felt sorry for the participants, but I also felt sorry for the organizers because these poor people, like, you know, they wanted a successful show too. What what you're expressing, it, it, it's definitely inappropriate in that mm-hmm. culture, but the illegal part probably was because they were yelling at people uh, yeah. Emiratis, first of all, that so that's anybody who's not an Emirati yelling at an Emirati is not going to be received well, right? And it, they were probably part of the government. And anytime you you're not allowed, generally not allowed to say, like publicly say anything negative about the government either. So yeah, yeah. So it's that kind of heated, very heated situation. So we just sort of stood back and talk to our new friends and they, they explained to us the situation. So we had a little bit more knowledge and, and it was like, no, no, it's not a scam. It was just a really bad decision is what it wound up being. But, you know, I saw the Middle East. It was a good experience. And then after that, because I'm a diver, my partner at the time and I flew to the Maldives to dive. So we had a short little vacation and, you know, kind of decompress from the whole show. Yeah, Abu Dhabi is a great place to visit. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back, though. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed my time there, and I'm just happy I got out without being arrested. <laughs> Do I want to know what you were doing that led to that, that worry? Oh, no, that's my worry everywhere, all the oh. time. I mean, my, my childhood, I, you know, I was always afraid of being arrested or getting in trouble. Like I, I barely graduated high school. I got threatened to be thrown out of high school twice in my senior year alone. And I, I got, wow. I literally got kicked out of a college. And not only did I get kicked out of the college, but I got to kicked out of the county and the city and I wasn't allowed back. <laughs> Goodness, you have led a storied life, haven't you? Yeah, well, then on top of that, my general sort of paranoia from being, you know, I was a drug addict for many years. So, of course, that created a whole like mm-hmm. fear of mm-hmm. police and being arrested and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. Wow. No, the being kicked out of the college, that that kind of wasn't my fault. Basically, I threw the most epic party ever <laughs> to the point that like 20 years later, they're still talking about They're still about talking about it? Like, it's, it was an <laughs> epic party and um lots of horrible things ensued and they basically just turned around everybody just turned around and blamed me even though it wasn't my apartment where the party happened i was not the party organizer i was just Mm -hmm. the guy who sort of walked in and was like all right let's have a party and stepped it up 
Mm-hmm. And so they just blame me for everything. And don't get me wrong. It was fine. I had the dumb luck because I got, I got, a, I got all that stuff. So I got, I also got arrested that same week. So I got arrested and then the school turned on me. So I got kicked out of the County and the city for being arrested for quote unquote, verbally assaulting someone. Goodness. I didn't even know this was a thing you could be arrested for, but like, <laughs> I, yeah, I like how many years ago was that? Like today I could see people being arrested for that, but how many this years This would ago? have been 1993. Wow. And, and this person, I, I said to them, what I said was, this is a crock of shit. <laughs> and they accused me of verbally assaulting them. Oh, so it was a Karen back when Karens weren't Karens yet. You know, yes, she was a very religious young lady, let's say. Oh, and she was just yeah. not not approving of my language. And so she actually had me arrested. And so it was just ridiculous. To think about pulling that off back then. I mean, now it's like you look at somebody wrong and it, it, all hell breaks loose, it feels like, in our overly PC culture. I don't know. Do you have that in Prague? Do you, do you feel that? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no, they will say you. horribly negative things about anything here. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is a certain amount of PC in certain industries, let's say, but like now in a lot of lot of places and in general conversation, they're perfectly fine with it. I mean, for the past, I don't know what it was, five years, four years, the prime minister owned the newspaper. So oh. nothing negative was ever written about the government. Right. Of course. <laughs> so, of course not. Because you know, he owned the newspaper. So, but that that's changing literally today. There's a new prime minister being installed. So that, that won't continue. Thank goodness. But wow. Yeah. No, it's not horribly PC here. Freedom of press doesn't exist there. It sounds like. Well, it does. And he had the freedom to own the press. (laughs) Right. Okay. So that's how they're spinning that. Well, he was, he was referred to as like baby Trump. That's, that's how they. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, and that's why he's, well, not staying in the, the next election, which is very good. I like that. That is good. That is really good. One thing I wanted to know about, actually, too, is like your work is, part. some of it is very large scale, or at least reason, like once installed, I guess, but like still mm-hmm. very, pretty large scale. And some of your stuff is very small. I always wonder about artists and their storage. <laughs> oh, yes. So... Very early on, it became clear that the normal kind of paradigm of double boxing, using peanuts, using bubble wrap for artwork was just not going to work with anything that I, that I created. So that was out. I, I had a professor once tell me when I said, yeah, but how do I ship something? He said, just create what you want to create. We'll figure out the rest later. And so I, I try to, I try to do that most of the time when I create my work, but shipping and storing is a big issue for, for someone that does larger scale glass sculpture. Each of my pieces in the wind and water series has to have a custom crate and each of the sections of those sculptures has to be put in like custom cutout foam basically. So I'll use two layers of foam on the bottom of a double corrugated box. And then I'll sort of cradle the piece in the foam. I'll cut 
out a slot where the bottom goes since mine are sort of, you know, being mostly wall pieces, occasional three-dimensional, which is packed totally different, but being mostly wall pieces, they have a flat back. So I rest them on their flat back. I pack them in very carefully. They get box, they get like pillow foam and they get sort of a kind of like a cushion foam on the bottom and they get put in these rather giant crates. And so, so hold on, wait, mm -hmm. the, these large scale pieces, we're talking about the wind and water stuff. Yes. They ship in the, like, so there'll be, you created these permanent things. Like in my mind, I was thinking you dismantle them to ship them and then put them back together when they arrive. Like, but you, they are solid when you're done with them and you ship them as a single solid piece. Correct. I mean, now with wow. modular okay. pieces, like if I have a grid and it's got, say, 25 six inch by six inch squares, each of those gets individually boxed. Right. But yeah, I mean, there's some panels that I'll create that are over 100 pounds to lift onto the wall. And that has to get its own individual box. And then if it has other frames, that go along with it. Like let's say it's a three part installation. The biggest piece is the heaviest and then it's got supportive pieces either to the left or the right, bottom, top, whatever. Those all get separately boxed so that if the crate undergoes any jostling, you know, obviously the sculptures aren't going to cling together. And then those boxes get set into a crate that's custom made for it. And the hard part about, you know, what glass artists do is that we, we have to think about everything hinges upon, I, and I don't mean to be demeaning here, but like some peon that is loading and unloading a crate from a truck. Oh yeah, you so, have to plan for the lowest common denominator. Exactly, of how that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, to exactly. This. That's what I'm trying to say in a really polite way. So you got to plan for what a peon is going to do. So in some ways, you have to de-incentivize as much as you can the tipping, the jostling, whatever. So I always put handles and put it on a pallet, make the pallet flare because if the pallet doesn't flare underneath the crate, they'll tip it. So you have to constantly think about, okay, how do I outsmart a peon? Because the peon is going to be like, yeah, I don't give a shit. I don't get paid enough to care about this. You know, it's got a $40,000 sculpture in it, but what do I know? I don't care. You know, I'm just hungry. What did my, you know, what did my wife make me to eat today or, or this or that? And that's all they're thinking about. So I store everything. I've got a studio, but I store everything off site in climate controlled storage. Okay, but that's interesting to me. So, like, glass should be stored in climate-controlled spaces? Well, like mine, yes, because often what I'll do is I will build into a metal frame and I will seal all the elements with a resin. So just to make sure that everything is sort of locked into place, it becomes one giant block. So I'm assembling... Much like if you've ever watched a 3D printer print, say, a bust of a man, how it starts as the shoulders, and then it works its way up to the neck, and then it works its way up to the chin, and then it goes from bottom to top. So when I'm creating these sculptures, because I'm not using materials where I can go back 
and adjust something, I have to sort of follow an edge, you know, say the lower right hand corner, and then build around that sticking in one piece at a time, holding in my head the three dimensional image of what I want to create. So I will start in a corner of a canvas and then work around that area, keep expanding, keep expanding, work to the other corner, and then like work upward often. So I'm giggling under my breath because you were doing hand gestures that nobody can see. Oh, yeah, on. yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, these these are all individual pieces. They get sealed with resin. And, you know, the because we get so cold in Wisconsin, we can get like minus 30. Okay, yeah, that's fair. I forgot you were in Wisconsin. Yeah, so we can get like, you know, 100 degrees and we get to minus 30. So that's 130 degrees spread. I worry about the expansion and contraction of the materials. I worry about the expansion contraction of the colors versus the clear glass. And I just don't want to take any chances. So yeah, I do I do climate controlled. No, that makes sense. Now that yeah. I thought about the fact that you're in Wisconsin and it gets really fucking cold there. So like it I is. Get that. If I lived in Florida, it'd be different. Yeah, but then it would be the humidity that would exactly. be a thing, and then you know mold and whatever that yeah. would creep in. And yeah, I'm I'm a, don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of keep storing art in climate controlled areas. I can't imagine why anybody would store any form of art not in a climate controlled area. But. Mm -hmm. It's a pain in the butt to to be transporting back and forth, and you know the the entrance to the climate controlled is 47 inches. Currently, I have the desserts, which are packed in a single crate that measures 48 inches. So that can't be in climate controlled. It's, it's, you know, it's in my studio, which sucks. I hate having that much there. I like the, I like the idea. I feel like I can sleep better at night knowing that, you know, if my place blows up, <laughs> you know, in the middle of the night, that it's not taking along a whole body of work with it, but well, you could redesign that. I know. Case. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about that. Do you build the case yourself as well, or do you outsource that? You know, that is, that is one of the two things that I outsource. I do absolutely everything else. I'm a one woman operation. I even do my website, my web, web building, things like that. But when it comes to crates, I outsource. I just, it's, it's just not something I need to do myself. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. Is there any topics you want to talk about that I haven't brought up or that interests you or any questions you have for me that, that, you know, whatever? When you were talking to Kate Rhodes, I'm very interested in the concept of which is like legacy planning or something like that. But I uh, did a little search on your website and I think that there's, there's some information there. There's some other podcasts where I think you mentioned that. There is. There actually was a, a, um, Amy Potsick, who does, who actually does legacy planning. That's her job. And mm -hmm. so she helps to do that for people. But yeah, I mean, legacy planning is one of those things that like, I'll be honest, I worry about it personally, because my worry is, is that of course I, I'm like you, I'm probably, I'm very productive. So like, I've got mm -hmm. lots and lots of work and like some of it went down little rabbit holes that sort of never manifested and others, um, I think they're amazing, but they have nothing to do with sort of my style. So like, so I can't really exhibit them because they wouldn't fit with my image, let's say. Mm -hmm. 
And I've also got like hundreds of thousands of fo digital photographs that like if anybody were to ever, like if I were to die in some freak accident, my biggest fear is that people are going to go through my stuff and be like, oh, hey, he, he worked really hard on that. He must have really thought that was great. And I'm like, no, that's horrible. Oh, Please never right, put right. my name to that. But I've kept it. So like, so, so people might think that I think it's good enough to mm -hmm. keep. And I'm like, no, no, I just didn't want to get rid of it. I just, that's all. <laughs> but it's all a part of you though. It's all a part of your, your journey, like the strengths and the weaknesses. I mean, don't you think like, even if someone was to feature something that you weren't fond of, you know, do you think that that really detracts from the overall like magnum opus of what you've created in your life? Well, the honest truth to it is, is when it comes to the idea of legacies, I will have no control over that because I'll be dead. So, yeah. But, but like we can do better because like one of the things that like, Amy Potzik brought up was the idea of like keeping all paperwork, keeping all your, your journals, your receipts, all these kinds of things, like don't throw them away because they're going to, the, it was interesting because she, she mentioned something that I've now become a bit obsessed about doing, which is like, you should keep all these things because after you're dead, the only way that you will become um, sort of, I guess these like able to be studied so that people mm -hmm. can like look into is through whatever you leave. So like whatever gets put to give into a, a library or a museum or whatever, that's the way that people will put you into the art canon mm -hmm. after your death. Mm -hmm. And so if you have none of that stuff, then people can't study you and therefore then put you into the art canon, you know, it, it decades after your death kind of thing. And so like now I'm like, okay, I've got to keep all of the little scraps of paper of like ideas. Like I've even got here, nobody can see this. Hold on. Nobody can see this, but I've actually got like a book uh -huh. that, and this is, and in this book, I now, I like every guest I have on the podcast, I like give them a separate page. And so there are all these notes of like what I wanted to talk about, even though I may have not gotten to that topic with them, mm -hmm. but it was like what I was thinking while I was talking to them. So like, I'm trying to like create something that like will allow future scholars to be able to research my motivations and my ideas and things like this more because otherwise like, you know, there are lots of people like there's this one guy, uh, Tiche, um, Miloslav Tiche is a Czech photographer. There's nothing of his except for his photographs. Mm -hmm. And so like it took, it was a really hard to, sort of figure out why he did what he did and all this kind of stuff. So people are just guessing at it. And so like, I'm trying my best to like create a set of stuff to be able to leave to future scholars, to be able to understand where I was at a certain time period in my life and why this work was relevant and all this kind of stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I'm being so egotistical about it, thinking that I'm even worthy to be in these kinds of things. But you know, but this is actually really interesting. It's so apropos because, you know, my parents have asked me to put together some type of will, you know, in light of all the COVID stuff. And I started to do that. And this was the first time that I really had to think about these things. And my first thought was like, oh, my God, what's going to happen to my work? And then the second thought was, oh, my God, am I arrogant? You know, I kind of was, but I'm like, look at, I've done so many different things. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a belly dancer and I've created all my own costumes, you know, like, wait, wait, are you, wait, hold on. Are you being serious? You are a belly dancer and you have your own yes. costumes. 
Okay, I thought that was like a metaphor. No, go, go on. I, I I've literally created all my own costumes. Like I've got stone carvings that I've done. I've got, you know, I mean the, the major things, of course. But you know, I've got ceramics all over my house. I've got, you know, metals things. And there's the thing that like artists think, and this is to most of our detriments. We think that when we die, oh, we'll we'll donate it to a museum. Most museums don't want our shit. Like they just don't want it because it's a burden on them if we're not of some caliber or some interest or even of their style. Because a lot of artists say like, oh, I want to leave mine to the MoMA. But like maybe my work doesn't fit with MoMA, even though I think it fits with MoMA. And so they they would just say no. Like I've even thought about the idea of like creating a a hierarchical list saying like my first choice of museums that I would like my work put in is Mm -hmm. this one. Number two (laughs) would be this one. Number three would be this one. And maybe this set of work might go well with this particular collection over here. Right. I I've, yeah, I'm bad about it, but part of it for me becomes in the past year with oddly enough, I've had like five people close to me die. And so oh. oddly enough, none of them COVID related, which is very weird, but, and it started me down the sort of like, okay, w- w- what if I die? Like, mm-hmm. and my parents are getting older and what about their art collection? And my father's an artist. My father paints Russian Byzantine icons. Like, so he's got, oh. a, you know, like t- 200 icons around the house. And it's like, what do we do with all this? Yeah. And so it's just sort of like this issue of like, we create these objects that are supposed to represent us and all this. And then like, you know, if, and when we pass away, what happens to them? And Mm -hmm. unfortunately, a lot of really amazing artists didn't have any plan and they end up lost to time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so like, I'm sort of thinking like, I want to be a little bit more conscientious about it and try to plan it ahead of time and try to like you know like I'm even thinking I I actually have a museum in mind that I would try to donate my work to but that's because it's a regional museum and I lived there for a while and so like there there is a reason why they might want it but sure they probably wouldn't want it (laughs) well it's just I mean it was fascinating because when I was listening to your Kate Rhodes podcast was the first time that I'd ever heard I mean look, I live under a rock, you know, I truly do. And, you know, I don't come out very often, but, you know, listening to that and listening to Kate talk about it, I was like, wow, I guess I'm not the only one that thinks about this. I don't think it's arrogance. I think it's just the hope that, that even if within our own lifetimes, we don't necessarily get to whatever, but that, you know, we live past our lifetime, that, you know, yeah. that, that our art has created a legacy. Yeah. And so that's, that's always the hope. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. I have two legacies that I hope I give off, which is that, and also uh, being a teacher. So I hope that like the next generation are somehow influenced mm-hmm. by my teaching. Of course. Yeah. I don't know if they are, but I hope they are. Well, it's just very, I mean, I guess that was comforting. It's just something that I've got to look into because, you know, having to put together a will and think about these things, I'm like, Jesus, I don't know where to start. You know, I I hope I've got plenty of years left in order to keep building a career in order to get to a point where, again, don't really, you know, have sort of this 
love-hate relationship with privacy versus fame, like don't really want fame, but, you know, wouldn't mind being known well enough in the art world to be able to make it into more museum collections. Because, you know, when people ask you what you want to do as an artist, you know, my, my initial response was not, I want to make really cool art for rich people. I want to serve the 1%. I mean, that's not why we do this. You know, that that's not my, <laughs> for those of you that can't see him, he's bursting out laughing. Well, don't get me wrong. I will, I will gladly make art for the 1% so that I, and I will spend 10% of my time on that so that I can spend 90% of my time doing whatever the fuck I want. There you go. There you go. Yeah. But you know, like the patisserie series, it's like, I want that to be in a museum. I want little kids to go up to it and look at it with wonder and like have their parents lift them up. And I want their eyes to get really big. And then, you know, I want the giggling. I want, I want to, Oh my God, is that chocolate Easter bunnies? Why is the ear bitten off mommy? Why? You know, I want something like that to happen rather than, you know, it just end up in, you know, some other person's home that, you know, not that that's not okay, because oftentimes those do end up in museum collections, and I'm thankful for that. But having to think about this stuff, it's like, wow, what if I die before I can find the home that, that I'd want this to go into? It is a, a scary thing for artists in general, because... Like, I have, you know, every time I make a piece and I sort of finish it and it's ready for exhibition, I'm always like, this would look stunning in the yep. blank, you know, so like Guggenheim, the oh, MoMA, yeah. the, the, right. the, the, you know, Bilbao, whatever, like mm -hmm. Tate, you know, like I, I, I can picture it like here locally, the Rudolfinum here in the gallery, you know, like I can always put in my mind, I'm like, oh, this would make for a beautiful exhibition in this location. Absolutely. Unfortunately, none of those places know that I want the pieces right, to be there. Right. But you know, yeah. I mean, when when I started this podcast, like if you go all the way back to like the first ten episodes or something, like way back when, one of my questions was that I was trying to say I I actually set out with the goal of learning from all the guests the process by which I could get a piece of my art put into the permanent collection in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Ah, and what did you learn? That it is almost all political and <laughs> that the easiest way, oddly enough, to do it is to get your work collected by somebody who's on the board mm -hmm. at the Museum of Modern Art so that that person who's on the board is collecting your works, so they will then recommend you to be exhibited or collected by the museum because then it will increase the value of their collection because now an additional piece oh, will be in goodness. the museum, yes. which would raise the value of the collector's works. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's it's amazing how much stuff is political. I mean, all the shit out there is political. It's crazy. You know, and for people like me that like, I, I like my rock. Don't make me come out from underneath it. I don't want to have to market. I don't want to have to schmooze. I don't want to have to know so-and-so who knows so-and-so who loves my work, who's going to recommend it to such and such museum. Like to me, if you ask me, like this should all be based on merit. Like who has a fantastic, you know, piece of work and, and the rest is just 
bullshit. It's absolute bullshit. Like just the politics involved with with some stuff is it's just it's astounding. And for for those of us that don't schmooze a lot and you know aren't social butterflies creating all these connections and then connections to those connections like look i'm an artist that's not what i do i make shit if i wanted to do that i would have been in banking or car sales exactly or whatever else exactly you know it's like i i almost need to hire an agent but i'm too stubborn to do that and don't want to deal with that bullshit either so you know what i mean I mean, it's a sad state of affairs because, I mean, especially these days with like Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and all this stuff, like, unfortunately, merit and quality, I feel like, are less important than Mm -hmm. branding, cult of personality, celebrity status, et cetera. And it's funny, I had this conversation recently with somebody else, which is like, to a certain extent, like, I feel like the popularity of art, quote unquote, art, has it now begun to favor youth mm-hmm. uh, over experience and wisdom and and craftsmanship and age and all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. When you know, like when when I was young and you're the same age as me, like we revered the artists that were in their 60s and their 70s. We were like, oh my god, they've like reached the pinnacle. They've they've found that thing by after decades of working. Mm-hmm. And now it it's, feels like it's more like. Oh, hey, you make something really pretty. Oh my gosh, I love that. And that's it. And Mm -hmm. and it's done. And the sense of longevity and growth and expertise and craftsmanship that comes with decades of working in the industry, it seems to, or feels to me, to be of less interest these days. Yeah. I often tell my friends, I mean, this doesn't hold true 100% of the time, but I'll tell them, I said, you want to know the real artists on Instagram? They have less than 5,000 followers. Those are the real artists. You want to know the posers? Yeah, they got 70,000 plus. You know, it's it's just the way it goes. It's crazy. It, it is kind of hard. I mean, because like I want more followers on Instagram, <laughs> but I want sincere followers. I want people mm-hmm. who actually respect and appreciate my work. But but I also would like to have a little bit of like popularity and like, mm-hmm. like, cause I'm, I'm probably much like you. I've always been on the outside looking in on many things. Like I've never fit in per se and, and followed the crowd and been part of kind of thing. Yeah. I've always been the, like in high school, I was the guy that I had friends in every click, but I was never part of any click. Ah, that was me. That was me too. Yeah, I was the chameleon that could float between the clicks, never fitting anywhere, but yet kind of fitting a little bit of everywhere. Yeah, that was me for for a long time. And and even still to this day, like, I mean, I feel like I'm pretty good at sort of connecting dots, but I'm actually not good at being part of. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. I don't know what the moral of the story is. Maybe we all just need agents, fantastic agents that are only going to take 5% and make the world know that we're like, Hey, these are living artists that are pretty cool. You might want to check out their stuff. You know, it's funny. I didn't even realize there were things like artists, agents until like a year ago. (laughs) Yeah. I was just like, I could have gotten one of those like a decade ago. Like they existed. Yeah. But you know what? Then, then, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, what comes with agents is shows. What comes with shows is galleries. And then all that cascade of BS that comes with it, like. 
yeah, I'm just going to crawl back under my rock. I'm fine. I'm not doing so bad. <laughs> I call it the carrot and stick thing. You know, like when very early on when I was working with galleries, it became apparent that, you know, I would sell something and they'd be like, you know, great, we want 10 more. And I'm like, I can't make 10 more. I can only make 10 in one year. What are you talking about? Oh, well, we want more. We want more. I'm like, God, you guys are like a crying baby. You're just like, you're either crying about your poopy diaper or you're crying because you're hungry or you're crying because you want to cry. And then it would be like, oh, well, you, you know, oh, we just, you know, we want to do this show, but we need you to make like 25 more pieces. And it was always something. It was always something. They needed something more. And I'll tell you, I saw this image that I knew I had to get immediately and hang on my studio wall. And what it was, it's, it's this print of a carrot. And the carrot is attached to one of those puppeteer wooden harnesses, like through strings. So it's basically able to be moved by a human hand. And I have that up in my studio to remind me that it's very easy to fall into the system that's like produce more, produce more, you want more, sell more, this, that. And it's easy to get sucked into that. And what I realized is that no matter how hard I worked, it was never enough. No matter how much I sold, I never got any richer. And after I realized those two things, I just sort of stepped away and was like, fuck it, I'm out, I don't care. It's true because like if, if you give me any given day and you say, okay, here you have four hours free, my first inclination is always, oh, great, I can go make some more work. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, but there are other people like these TikTok or Instagram social media people that I'm talking about that like, they're like, oh, okay, great. I can do some publicity or marketing or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, like I would, I would always prefer to take more time in the studio to make new work over well, pretty much doing anything else. Yeah, I'm with you. The rest just is it's so exhausting. It sometimes feels like those jobs, to me, would take as much work as 40 hours in the studio to do like one hour of marketing and, and that kind of crap, just because I hate it so much. It absolutely would. It's such. It, it's a full-time job. I mean, this is, okay, this is my rant. I've talked about this before, but this is my rant is that I feel like in the old days, and maybe not like super old days, but like, let's say like late 20th century kind of old days, the artists were the people who made stuff and then they handed it off to a curator or a collector or a gallerist. And and then they did all the marketing, public relations and all that kind of stuff. These days, it's all been sort of given back to the artist to do. And so mm -hmm. suddenly we now have more work to do. Not only do we have to produce beautiful art, but we also have to then potentially write statements or get mm -hmm. grants or do proposals or do all these. We've, we now have to do more. So not only just make great art, but then we also have to convince people to buy it, do the, the transaction, publicity for it, marketing for it, brand ourselves as this whatever bullshit. And so it, it's waters down the art because we have to spend so much time and energy mm -hmm. on all these other things. Oh, absolutely. Like I, would, I would love it if we could not spend any of that time and I could, I could take all the time that I put into all that bullshit and just make better art. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> I feel the same way. I truly do. It's just not my thing. It's nice to know I'm not alone in my oh god you're not tirade. alone no 
Now I talk about it all the time. I, I talk about, you know, and I bitch to my friends because it's like, you know, people will be like, oh, you're an artist. How wonderful. And I just like, oh, I'm like, okay. All right. You know what? I'm not going to get into it. I'm not going to get into it today. I'm not going to get into the overhead. I'm not going to get into the galleries. I'm not going to get into how many times I've been bent over the barrel. I'm not going to get into how much of my day is spent doing bullshit activities I really would rather not do. Or like, you know, owning a glass studio, how much of my time is fixing and rebuilding equipment that, you know, is industrial. I got to wear a respirator. I got to wear like a canvas apron. I got to wear gloves. I'm getting poked and prodded and cut and electrocuted and, you know, little tiny explosions here or there. It's, you know, people just, they, they don't, don't quite understand what goes into working with various different materials and processes. And they don't understand the BS behind being an artist, like what you just mentioned, how much extraneous energy it takes that frankly, like, I, I just don't want to give that. I'd rather just use the, utilize that energy and go paint something or go make something. Well, it's not you know? even just that though. It's the anxiety and the fear and the fear of rejection or the fear of oh, yeah. people not appreciating your stuff or, I mean, fuck, I mean, I, like I will put like the last set of work I did, I put three years into just honing the skill and finding the right mediums and putting them together in just the right way to be able to express the idea. And, and then I put the work out there and everybody's just like, yeah, okay. Like, and I'm, I'm like, okay, well, I'm fine. And it's really, well, well, this is okay. Here, I'll tell you the story of my career. This is the story. Of my I just career. want to give you a big hug right now. <laughs> I know. Seriously. This that is like the pity party on me here. No, but like, it's story, not. No. But it's just, this is a part of being an artist. So it's not necessarily, not necessarily a pity party. This is the side of being an artist that you have to accept. Like there's good, there's bad. I mean, people will be like, how much did you sell that for? Like, how much did you make per hour? And I'm like, you know, dude, go fuck yourself. Like you just, even if I tell you, you're not going to understand all the rest that goes into it. Well, so. no. Okay. This is my thing that I always feel like I'm not sure if I'm ahead of the curve or behind the curve. I am never on the curve. I'm never on the bubble, like never period. Mm -hmm. I, I'm always either too early or too late. And what always happens with me is I will make a set of work and I'll work on it for like three, four, five years, and I'll, I'll get this all together and I'll put it all out there. And people are like, meh. And I'll be like, fine, okay, well, and I'll move on and I try something else. And then I come up with a whole nother set of work. And now as soon as I put out that set of work, everybody's like, oh, you know what? I love that last set. All right. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, oh. It's, it's like you mentioned that liking the sentimentalist work. When mm -hmm. I put up the sentimentalist works, the first time people were like, oh, okay. And now that I've moved on past the sentimentalist work and mm -hmm. I have this other work that I'm working on, and people are like, you know, I really love that sentimentalist work. Mm. You're like, thanks. I'm like, you, you could have been I'm a little so more great. timely in that. You could have given some appreciation at the time, not a decade later. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm always... I don't know before ahead of the curve or behind the curve or or maybe not even part of the curve. Who the fuck knows? But like I I'm never on time with my work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I can identify. I feel like I've been a day late and a dollar short. I'm always applying for these big public art projects, and I always come in second. 
I always come in second and I've got some fantastic ideas and it breaks my heart every time. So I always feel like I'm a day late and a dollar short. That's what I call it. You call it behind the curve. I call it a day late and a dollar short. I use the same saying. I just don't use it right now. But you should. there's a, a, a thing called the Prague Sculpture Line, and they fund very well. And they do oh. always big, big installations all around. So like, you should look into that one. Nice. That's cool. Yeah, very big. And they, you know, funded by the municipality and all that stuff. So like good, good funding. You could come, you could come to Prague, use a glass studio here, because of course, you know, the famous Czech glass uh-huh, uh-huh. and make a piece here and then put it into the Prague sculpture line. Mm, that's go. a good idea. It's a very good idea. There's some magnificent glass artists here. I mean, Karen Lamont it lives here. Oh, does she really? Yeah. I didn't know she lived in Prague. Yeah. Wow. Her work is fantastic. I've tried to get her on the podcast and she keeps putting me off, but sooner or later I'll get her on here. Yeah. Yeah. She's got great I've even work. offered to make it as easy as possible. I'm like, I will come to your studio and set everything up. You just sit there and talk. Well, it's not like, like this like, is yeah, that hard. You got to open time. a computer. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but she keeps putting me off. So there. But I look forward to having her on. She's magnificent. She makes beautiful work. So mm-hmm, yeah, sure. there's some great Czech glass artists. Like, whoa, wow, amazing stuff. Hmm. So. Cool. All right. Any last things? Because this has gone exceedingly long for a podcast. <laughs> no, I, I think we covered all of the things, the good, the bad, and everything in between. Marvelous. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening all the way to the end of the conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts community is at the core of our mission for the podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014. The audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. The Wise Fool Art Podcast is supported in part by an EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway in an effort to work together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website wisefoolpod.com.